This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Brian Walsh. Dr. Walsh is the president of the American Association of Respiratory Care for the years 2017 through 2019. He's also associate in critical care medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's also the author and editor of the textbook on neonatal and pediatric respiratory care. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Brian, in your many roles, you have a global perspective on how mechanical ventilation is used and how it could be perhaps more effective in the uh, neonatal and pediatric environment. And as we sit here, I'm wondering about how you view how we could be better, and in particular with the lens of the Institute of Medicine's definition of optimal healthcare. About 10 years or so ago, they defined optimal healthcare as healthcare that's safe, effective, and efficient. And yet we know from the literature, and I think candidly from our own experience, that we don't always use mechanical ventilation to be safe, effective, and as efficient as we could. How do you think about um, how we could be safer in using mechanical ventilation? What are the problems that clinicians make? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to first start to think about how to ideally ventilate a patient. Um, and one of the things that uh, I often say is that prevention starts at the first breath. Uh, Ventilator-induced lung injury is very common, um, but it shouldn't be acceptable. Um, and so when people say, well, how do you ventilate someone? Um, well, I often say that uh, you want to ventilate them to produce normal physiology, not abnormal physiology. And so let's just think a little bit about that. And so when people ask me about tidal volumes, uh, what should you set? And I say, well, you should probably set normal tidal volumes. Um, and when they find out that it's around five to seven per kilo, some people are a little bit resistant, um, as, you can, as you can imagine. But it's something that uh, I believe uh, that is normal. Um, when it comes to peak inventory pressures, often we say, you know, keep them below 30, um, 28 to 30. But I think that's also conditional. Um, I think if they're spontaneously breathing um, and they're using the respiratory muscles to create a, a negative uh, pleural space, a lot of times that transpulmonary pressure is higher. And so I'd have lower standards for uh, someone who's spontaneously breathing and I often say 18 to 20 uh, in those patient populations. Uh, the adult guys are starting to look at delta pressure um, as being important and that's kind of the inverse of compliance if you think about it. So the more delta pressure, the difference between peak and story pressure and PEEP that you have to use, uh, the more poorly compliant they are. Um, and so this will help you uh, judge your PEEP titration uh, and, and those types of things. And then last but not least, and something that uh, we've used sparingly, uh, particularly when we're having to go above peak and story pressures of 30 or so, uh, we like to uh, uh, evaluate transpulmonary pressure or using esophageal manometry uh, to determine uh, pleural space or pleural pressure, excuse me. Um, and we want to keep that number between uh, or less than 20 to 25. When it comes to uh, oxygenation, um, the uh, policy group is really good at uh, uh, determining uh, mild, moderate, and severe uh, oxygenation based on either oxygen index or saturation oxygen index. 
but one that uh, is not uh, alluded into the literature that I think we potentially uh, abuse is, is oxygen. I think we a little bit, use a little bit too much oxygen, and so hyperoxia, uh, in my mind, is defined as a sat greater than 98 on greater than 30% oxygen. And so when you get below 30% oxygen, some people say the risk versus benefit is not there, um, and so it's something you have to think about. And then last but not least, um, which is um, it's just physiology. In, in, in intensive care medicine, I think we're a great physiologist, um, and so it's the respiratory rate. I think that tells us a lot about the patient and how they're doing. If you're having to use abnormally low respiratory rates, that means that your tidal volumes are probably too large. Um, and it pains me to see someone, uh, say an infant, on a really low respiratory rate. Um, and that means that uh, we may be uh, uh, giving them too much uh, pressure um, or tidal volume. And, so, and then uh, also high respiratory rates um, also are a problem too. That means that we may be giving them too low of tidal volumes um, and it's something that we have to think about when it comes to that. So respiratory rate can be very telling. Well, Brian, that's a wonderful overview of the ideal state. Now, can I take you through how did you get there and how do we think about again, in the framework of mechanical ventilation should be safe and effective and efficiently used. Where do you begin to think about this? I'd like to back up a little bit and do a 30,000 foot view of kind of medical errors in general. Um, uh, last year in the uh, British Medical Journal, they actually presented that the uh, medical errors in the U.S. are the third leading cause of death, um, resulting in 251,000 deaths. And so I thought we probably should look at that literature to see where mistakes are actually being occur and then actually start to fine tune and look into mechanical ventilation. But before we do that, let's look at uh, the incidences of mechanical ventilation in our uh, intensive care unit. So uh, roughly in pediatric ICUs, it's about 30 to 50% of the patient population um, and about a quarter of them actually require mechanical ventilation longer than 24 hours. Uh, obviously the indications are typically respiratory failure with a roughly 65% of that, followed by uh, cardiovascular uh, failure and then uh, central nervous system um, and then airway issues. And of those patients who we mechanically ventilate, complications are actually quite frequently, um, with atelectasis probably being the, the highest level, uh, followed by ventilator-associated pneumonia, uh, then uh, pneumothorax, uh, bleeding, and then tracheal edema, um, and then lastly, uh, chronic lung disease from that. And so when you asked me to kind of talk about this, uh, I decided to look a little bit deeper at, uh, do we actually make mistakes in mechanical ventilation? Because sometimes I think uh, uh, we think that we don't um, often uh, when we look at our, our patient before us. Um, but when you actually look at the literature, uh, ventilator-induced lung injury happens in about a quarter of patients um, that we mechanically ventilate. Um, and this is, this is not it. It's, it's a hard uh, thing to talk about because obviously if we get patients off the ventilator uh, too soon um, or we delay uh, in liberation, uh, we can increase their mortality or morbidity. Um, and yet our extubation failures are less than 10% on average. Um, and, and then some of the tools that we use like extubation readiness testing um, are less predictive in the more complex patients. And that's the ones we're often worried about um, because the longer they're on mechanical ventilation, the more opportunity for mistakes and errors. And then lastly, um, about 25% of our patients are actually uh, found to be receiving inappropriate ventilator settings. So when, when I think about the top 10 mistakes that occur, uh, I think about three different uh, domains or categories, if you will. Um, failure to recognize, failure to act, and then failure to prevent. 
And so let's start with uh, alarms. Uh, alarms are something that uh, uh, was brought to my attention by this article in 2011 by the Boston Globe. And they linked alarm issues uh, or errors with 119 deaths. This was very eye-opening to me. And within this article, they actually showed that the FDA had uncovered approximately 800 alarm-related adverse events in 2010. 75% um, of them actually occurred in the ICU that we work in. Um, so alarm fatigue is real to me. Um, and people have responded with all different types of uh, actions, such as widening the alarm parameters, uh, putting in remote alarm uh, or alert systems that page your cell phone or pager, um, and then obviously done uh, education to try to improve this. The Joint Commission, in fact, uh, actually made it one of the nation, national patient safety goals um, for alarm management, and it's something that we're actively working on, and, and so are our colleagues across the U.S. at least. Uh, often people think that alarms are replacements for clinicians, um, and they're really not. They're, they're a symptom that the clinician has to sort out whether uh, it requires an intervention or not. I also think that alarms sometimes lull people into a false sense of security. Uh, ventilators are often a life-sustaining uh, and they must be monitored as such. Uh, and it's everybody's job to recognize a ventilator alarm and intervene if appropriate. So no matter if it's the janitor walking through the ICU and they hear an alarm going off that no one's answering, they need to pipe up and say, hey, we got a problem over here. Will someone check it out? This is kind of under the category of failure to recognize as well, um, which is one that uh, I often think about with non-invasive ventilation. Um, non-invasive ventilation uh, has grown over the past couple of years. Um, and so when I started looking at the practice of non-invasive ventilation, I started to uh, think that, uh, are we using it appropriately? Um, and so I looked at this particular study in Pete's Critical Care in 2000, uh, 11 about the attitudes of U.S. physicians. And largely they use it for post-extubation failure, uh, chronic insufficiency such as uh, restrictive lung disease, uh, followed by obstructive lung disease. And most people are more comfortable with older children who can follow directions. We also have better mask interface uh, for them as well, uh, followed by neonates um, and infants because we also have a better selection of masks in that patient population as well. When it comes to disease processes, most people use it for lower airways disease, um, followed by asthma, and then uh, the least uh, used uh, is in pediatric ARDS, and we'll come back to that in, in a few minutes. When it comes to the type of defect, whether it's oxygenation or ventilation, surprisingly, uh, most people use it for both, uh, meaning that this is probably a delayed uh, uh, therapeutic intervention. So if it's just oxygenation alone, people don't t tend to use non-invasive. If it's just ventilation or high CO2, they don't tend to, to, to use it as much. But when it's both, oxygenation and ventilation, that's when people tend to use non-invasive ventilation. Looking across uh, uh, the globe, I uh, found this particular study on uh, uh, the evolution of non-invasive mechanical ventilation in uh, Italian pediatric ICUs. Um, published in 2015. And one of the things that I really liked about this particular paper is it not only reviewed the diseases that we use it on, but it also started to put in the failure rates because I think the failure rates are important for us to look at. When it comes to asthma and bronchiolitis, the failure rates are really low, meaning that the patient selection is probably appropriate. However, when it's in uh, uh, pediatric ARDS or acute lung injury, the failure rate is as high as 45% or so. And so NIV is uh, increasing in use uh, despite a high level of evidence to support its use. Um, I think proper patient selection is key. Um, failure rates can be as low as 5% but as high as 45% depending on that disease. Um, and so it makes uh, patient selection vitally important. 
the indications um, are important for it to be standardized. In other words, that you use it consistently in that patient population um, and not in others. But I would also caution people in moderate to severe hypoxic respiratory failure. I think when you get to that level of distress, a lot of times the failure rate is so high that you probably should intubate them and move on to uh, positive pressure ventilation that way. When selecting a patient population for a non-invasive ventilation, you really need to determine the measures of success prior to the initiation uh, of non-invasive. This is where I'd like to people to have a powwow um, where they actually uh, determine what goals they have of using non-invasive ventilation. Um, and obviously you want to change the trajectory of that patient's disease progression. So if it's just lowering the respiratory rate, um, lowering the FiO2 requirement, um, making the SATs uh, a little bit better, uh, oxygen saturation is a little bit better, you need to sit down and find out what those goals actually are. Then you also need to determine the optimal timing of that. I usually like one to two hours um, or so, no more than that, because I think when you start prolonging that, you uh, can actually run the risk of having a patient who gets severely ill on you, and then you're forced with uh, intubating someone who's on 100% oxygen. Okay, the second in this failure to recognize category is asynchrony. And I first want to tell you about a patient that I had who was 11 years old. Uh, she was having difficulties when we were trying to wean her uh, off of uh, SIMV. And so she kept failing her extubation readiness uh, trials by not having an effort to breathe. And so they asked me to come evaluate her with a technology that we had newly acquired called Neurally Adjusted Ventilatory Assist. And so this actually uses uh, a, a NG tube that has electrodes on it that allows us to detect the electroactivity of the diaphragm. And so as you can see here on this diagram, uh, the bottom scalar graphic uh, is actually the contractility or the e electroactivity of her diaphragm. And you can see that where I've pointed it out, her diaphragm is actually contracting, but the ventilator is failing to recognize her, uh, leading us to believe that she was asynchronous, uh, meaning that we had the trigger set uh, too difficult for her to actually uh, uh, trigger the ventilator. And so therefore, every time we put her in pressure support, which is a totally spontaneous breathing uh, mode of ventilation, she would fail um, or desaturate and get hypercarbic because of that. And so I started first exploring, like how often does asynchrony occur? And it looks like it occurs in about a third of the total number of breaths that we see. In the patients who have been studied, uh, it's been seen in every one of them. Um, an effective trigger like we had with that little girl uh, was the most predominant, uh, followed by delay termination and then double triggering. Um, and about 20% or more of asynchronies are unrecognized. Um, and at least in the adult literature, uh, asynchronies are associated with increased duration of mechanical ventilation and mortality. The good news, though, is that uh, education can improve recognition of asynchrony. Um, and you don't have to be a respiratory therapist or you don't have to be a physician uh, to be able to recognize uh, asynchrony. Education can actually account for both of those, nor does experience matter. Um, so you can be a very seasoned clinician um, or a brand new clinician right out of school and still be taught how to detect uh, asynchrony. The bad news is that because 20% or more are not recognized, people often sedate um, to reduce asynchronies uh, when patients are uncomfortable. Um, and this probably leads to the increase in duration of mechanical ventilation. So I always say that before you bolus, uh, the patient should be evaluated uh, for asynchrony. In summary, recognizing complications of mechanical ventilation is important and should be reviewed. Alarms should be carefully evaluated, set, and responded to to ensure patient safety while avoiding alarm fatigue. Patient selection is vitally important for modes of ventilation and goals of therapy. 
Asynchrony occurs often and should be evaluated prior to more risky interventions such as sedation or chemical paralysis. Brian, I suspect I speak for colleagues around the world in asking the following question. Um, can you be more specific? How can we recognize that the trigger sensitivity on the ventilator is set too high in order for the patient to initiate the breath, whether in the flow or in the pressure trigger sensitivity mode? How do you know it's too high? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that we, we often have to investigate. And so when your clinical assessment uh, tells you that uh, the patient should be able to actually interact with the ventilator, then you're likely most of the time right. So like in this example that I told you about that little 11-year-old girl, her eyes were open, she could follow me around the room, those types of things. And so she had every reason to be able to trigger the ventilator. Um, and her clinical course didn't uh, make us suspect that she had some neurologic injury in which she would not be able to trigger the ventilator. So a lot of times your eyes and ears are really your best advocate for that. Um, and then that's when we started looking at the, the ventilator secondarily. And uh, correspondingly, um, can the trigger sensitivity be set too low? and now uh, the patient's receiving more minute ventilation than you want, and how do you recognize that situation? Yeah, that's the one that I first uh, became aware of uh, when I was uh, practicing uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, Dr. Durbin and I actually wrote an uh, editorial on uh, ventilators bringing patients back to life, and it was kind of a joke because it was when flow triggering first became uh, uh, readily available on the ventilators, and we had a little girl who actually uh, was declared brain dead, sadly, um, and the, the trigger sensitivity was set by the therapist a little bit too sensitive, and so miraculously in the middle of the night, the patient started to have a spontaneous effort. Uh, unfortunately, it was because of uh, the cardiac ar artifact um, that the ventilator was seeing when it compresses on the airways itself that is actually creating a volume change, and the ventilator picked that up as, uh, a, as a breath. And so the parents obviously saw the respiratory rate go up, the spontaneous respiratory rate go up, and they assumed that she was actually making those efforts on her own. Uh, the next morning I came in and says, you know, that can't be, uh, took her off and put her on the bag and uh, determined that she was not making respiratory efforts. And so it can be set too sensitive. And particularly in patients who have normal lungs, um, it, it actually can be cause of, uh, of auto-triggering, uh, as people would call it. Uh, water also in the circuit can also create this auto-triggering um, and make patients almost hyperventilate um, when it comes to that. And so uh, certainly it can be set too sensitive. Um, and that's something that you have to look at uh, graphically as well. And what would you see on um, a scalar on the graphic uh, display of the ventilator? Yeah, so scalar graphics would actually show you something, uh, particularly if it's cardiac artifact, um, that's going to be in the relationship of the same rate. And so you'll see uh, uh, bumps in pressure um, as well as flow um, that you would actually see and correlate with the heart rate uh, as well. Brian, what are the interventions that people could be doing either because they appropriately are answering the alarm, but they don't, or uh, they could recognize asynchrony, but they don't. How do we fail to act in the ICU environment to intervene appropriately to help our patients effectively work with mechanical ventilation? Yeah, so let's go back to that uh, non-invasive uh, thought experiment, if you will. Um, and so you've now selected your patient, you're going to try non-invasive, and you've actually even set your therapeutic goals. In other words, what FO2 you'd like to get them down to, what respiratory rate you'd like to, uh, to see. Um, and then you've tried it for an hour or two, um, and they haven't met those goals. 
Um, and so now you're failing to act, in other words, to escalate to the next level, um, which means you really kind of set false goals. And, and I see this happen often because a lot of people don't want to intubate kids. Um, and we know all the negative effects of, uh, of intubation. Um, and so, but the problem is, is that if you let this patient become an extremist, then you're left with intubating someone on 100% oxygen, which we know uh, is very difficult at best. And I've even had patients actually all, escalate all the way to ECMO. Um, from non-invasive ventilation because I think that we picked the wrong uh, patient to actually trial uh, non-invasive first. And so and that's been the experience in adults as well is that sometimes their mortality rate is actually higher uh, when they make the wrong selection, but also then don't intervene uh, quickly. And so uh, I've heard many uh, adult uh, critical care uh, experts say, 30 minutes to an hour uh, is really all you should try to do to change their gas exchange. If you can't do it within that 30 minutes to an hour, you probably should escalate to the next level of care. And again, this is especially in the patient cohort that's defined by acute lung injury, and in particular, evolving acute lung injury as opposed to resolving acute lung injury. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, resolving and extubation failures, for example, are, are ones where I think hands down a lot of people feel very comfortable using non-invasive. It's the escalation of care using non-invasive, I think, is where we often need to pause and think, is this really the right patient? And if so, um, setting your goals and then executing them uh, when you don't, or executing the next level of care when you don't meet those goals. Once we go to invasive ventilation, a lot of times we make uh, mechanical ventilation a binary approach. Um, we have good ventilation, as I have here in the, the slide here, which means that um, they're on less than 80% oxygen, their peak and pressure is less than 30, their PEEP's less than 10, they have a normal to maybe even a low respiratory rate, um, and their duration of mechanical ventilation has been somewhere between less than five to seven days. Uh, bad would be um, they're on high FiO2, so greater than 80% oxygen, their peak and pressure pressure's now greater than 30, um, and PEEP's greater than 10, a normal respiratory rate to maybe even a little bit high um, respiratory rate. And now they've been on mechanical ventilation for longer than five to seven days. Um, and I think by making this binary decision, uh, uh, we oversimplify mechanical ventilation. Um, we, we lose opportunities to try lower risk uh, interventions to optimize mechanical ventilation. So that patient has a peak and pressure of 22 to say 25, for example, they don't have normal compliance, but they don't have horrible compliance either. But there are often opportunities in which you could actually uh, improve that compliance as well by maybe uh, adjusting the PEEP up a little bit more, uh, drying them out, uh, getting some fluid off, those types of things. Um, and we often uh, don't use that because we wait till the peak and pressure gets to 30 before intervening. Um, and so I think that we should categorize patients on mechanical ventilation as a low, moderate, or high risk for adverse events. And I think trending is important. Um, uh, I, I often say that uh, ARDS just doesn't occur uh, automatically or on day two. Um, a lot of times there's a trend that you often see. Um, same thing with severe lung injury. Um, it just doesn't occur from out of the blue. Uh, patients often um, will have uh, a history of high uh, peak airway pressures um, before they actually develop uh, air leak. And so uh, trending is often very, very important. Uh, Brian, could I ask a question about trends? Um, we're talking in the context now of, of evolved acute lung injury, ARDS. Are you trending indices of oxygenation, such as um, the oxygenation index or the PF ratio? Um, and if so, if you're choosing one or the other, is there evidence to guide that choice or is that experience? 
Sure. Yeah, the one that uh, I trend most uh, frequently now um, is non-invasive measures uh, of uh, oxygenation, so the, the saturation to FiO2 rate, uh, ratio. And that's something that uh, has been published several years ago um, that is actually shown to be pretty beneficial and correlate with uh, a PF ratio. And so uh, PF ratios obviously require an arterial blood gas. Um, and many of our patients who are in that mild disease state um, uh, don't often have that. Um, and so you can use saturations uh, to gauge the evolution of disease. Um, often people use a, a saturation uh, to FO2 ratio of 264 or below. Um, and so when you start getting into those lower numbers, you start to have mild to moderate uh, hypoxemia. Um, as defined by PF ratios or correlates of that. Yeah, oxygen index was uh, initially designed for, uh, t for us to make decisions about ECMO, uh, whether we should put someone on or not. Um, and recently, um, people have actually used a non-invasive uh, measure of oxygen index called the saturation oxygen index. So we use OI in our practice to help us determine uh, uh, ECMO use, uh, but we don't actually st stick with an absolute number. It's obviously the trend that is important. Um, and the trajectory of the patient. More recently, uh, people have actually used uh, non-invasive measures of oxygen index uh, mainly to gauge uh, research studies um, and to determine whether a patient would qualify for a particular study or not. And uh, just last year, the Polisi group uh, picked up the uh, saturation oxygen index and actually used that to help us determine mild, moderate, or severe disease states uh, and in appropriate interventions with that. Another one that I often uh, joke about, um, but it's actually in half seriousness as well, is that uh, failure to rescue from our rescue therapies. Uh, often rescue therapies, uh, such as recruitment maneuvers, for example, um, have to be timed appropriately to have the maximum effect. Um, and so I often get asked to evaluate a patient for a recruitment maneuver, uh, say when they're on day eight or nine of mechanical ventilation and they have actually been uh, very sick all along. Um, and that's when recruitment maneuvers probably uh, don't benefit. Uh, obviously, they worked best uh, in the early course of, say, ARDS, uh, not in the late course when they're in that fibrotic lung disease stage. And the risk of exposing a patient to uh, high peak airway pressures, for example, uh, outweigh the benefits. And Brian, um, just to uh, be be clear, um, so your uh, your your observation um, and uh, your point about recruitment maneuvers, um, the problem with doing them uh, five, six, seven, eight days into ARDS is that the inflammatory process is well established, and the concern that the recruitment maneuver itself could disrupt the architecture of the now very friable lung and cause air leak, is that the point? Yes, that's correct. And so uh, then the risk benefit uh, does not, uh, or the, the risk outweighs the benefit um, of a recruitment maneuver at that particular moment in time. And presumably the, the, the reason for the recruitment maneuver to be beneficial is early in the evolving lung injury ARDS stage where you want to recruit alveolar units that are collapsed to prevent that kind of volume trauma, cyclic opening and closing, uh, and to recruit those alveolar units early in the disease process. But to take that idea and bring it to late in the disease process is where you're concerned that you could be causing air leak around after five days or so? Correct, yeah. Uh, most of the literature supports uh, late in the course of ARDS, and so that's, I think, up to personal opinion. Uh, in my estimates, it's usually in that five to seven day uh, range uh, after diagnosis of ARDS. And that would be the optimal time to do it, or that would be the time to start avoiding it? That would be the time to stop 
to start avoiding it. Okay. Because the risk uh, does not outweigh the benefit. In summary, it's important to mechanically ventilate patients to acceptable goals. Mechanical ventilation settings that are often not physiologic should be avoided. All mechanically ventilated patients have a risk of injury. Risk stratification is an important step in recognizing potential risk and should include more than two categories such as good or bad. The other thing is that you know if you can get uh, the lung open early in the course, then you can start lowering FiO2 requirements um, and ventilatory settings, uh, which also may favor uh, uh, lung healing. Another one that uh, often push for is uh, high-frequency ventilation. So when we put someone on high-frequency ventilation. Uh, as a rescue mode of uh, ventilation. Um, uh, after about seven days, I start asking you to kind of convert them back over to conventional ventilation because I think that's run its therapeutic course often. And when you sedate or paralyze someone, they're not deep breathing, coughing, and clearing the airway. So a lot of times these patients end up uh, filling up uh, with secretions and uh, are having difficulties on high frequency ventilation. So sometimes pushing them after seven to eight days um, is actually the best course uh, to help them uh, improve or continue their course of improvement. Uh, same thing with uh, ECMO. Uh, often like to start pushing them uh, towards uh, decannulation days after uh, lung rest, if you will, not weeks. Um, often when you get into the two and three week courses uh, on rest settings, their lungs are, are poorly compliant um, and they have secretion issues and they're much more difficult to come off of ECMO support um, uh, after several weeks. So, uh, Dr. Walsh, you know, we, I mentioned earlier the framework uh, that the Institutes of Medicine talks about, that care should be safe and effective and efficient. And um, you've covered uh, some of the safety issues. I wonder if we could talk about uh, the efficient and effective uh, use of a therapy. In mechanical ventilation, what is the role of standardized protocols to re reduce variability? How should we think about protocols? Um, in the use of mechanical ventilation. Right, and so one of the things that we have is that uh, we have variation, um, and something that we're all very familiar with is that there's uh, a shortage of available data. Um, and obviously we're human as well, and so we make some cognitive errors. Um, and then you have institutional preferences, you have individual experiences, um, you have opinion. And then we also have extrapolation from neonatal and adult data, uh, which makes uh, variation sometimes uh, really difficult to handle. Um, but protocols have been shown to reduce that variation. Um, and mechanical ventilation uh, weaning protocols uh, are just as good as physician discretion in pediatrics. Um, however, comprehensive mechanical ventilation protocols um, have been shown to reduce duration um, of mechanical ventilation in pediatrics and adults. And I'm showing you this forest plot from the uh, British Medical Journal uh, because it shows that protocols actually favor uh, when it comes to duration uh, of mechanical ventilation. And there are several. Um, as early as the 1990s, um, people have demonstrated that the benefits of protocols reduce variation and duration of mechanical ventilation. And so when we think about mechanical ventilation protocols, we often uh, only develop uh, protocols for a very small portion of our patient population. And this is something that's been a little frustrating to me because a lot of times we have protocols for less than five to 10% uh, of our patient population. And let's just talk about ARDS because most places have ARDS protocols, um, but they don't, 
they're less than sometimes five to ten percent of their patient population and so uh, the rest of their simple post-op patients or patients who are mechanically ventilated because uh, uh, they had seizures and, and those types of things uh, often aren't protocolized and a lot of times lung injury can actually occur in those patients as well um, another thing that uh, uh, protocols have been shown to do is actually reduce uh, duration of mechanical ventilation in adults significantly, sometimes as much as 78%. Um, but they've actually had very little effect on decreasing ICU stay. And so we have to maintain equipoise and understand that it can probably get the patients off the ventilator sooner, um, but it may not get them out of your ICU sooner. Um, and so it's something that we have to think about when we're advocating for these uh, particular protocols. In pediatrics, if you look at the, the latest Cochrane review, um, there's limited evidence, uh, but it likely reduces duration of mechanical ventilation and doesn't appear to be harmful. Um, and so it, it likely helps us uh, standardize that approach. Well, Dr. Walsh, could we talk now in particular about the context of uh, uh, what we call liberation from mechanical ventilation or protocols to guide weaning and extubation. What do we know about the literature in that domain? Yeah, so I remain convinced that there's got to be better ways uh, than just spontaneously spontaneous breathing trials that we do daily. Um, and particularly in the light when we have extubation failure rates of less than 10%, um, which leads me to believe that we're either over-supporting or over-sedating patients. Um, and uh, we also sometimes have unplanned extubations that don't result in reintubation or even the use of non-invasive ventilation. And so it just kind of tees up that we, uh, we have difficulties uh, knowing when to get someone off the ventilator. Um, and then the opposite can also occur is that if we're nervous about a patient, we can actually extubate them to non-invasive. Um, and that sometimes increases their duration of mechanical ventilation. And so we have to think about both sides of that coin uh, often. Um, and one of the things that I think uh, uh, we struggle with is culture. Um, and there's a saying that uh, culture eats strategy for lunch every day. So we can come up with the best protocol. Um, but if there's a culture that you don't want to extubate soon enough, um, then you can have a problem. And examples that I hear about um, is not extubating at night or, or you make changes that facilitate weaning, such as reducing sedation on rounds, but then you don't test again for another 24 hours. Um, and so you could probably test that patient in four hours from now um, and determine if that intervention was appropriate and if not make another intervention uh, to get them off the ventilator by that afternoon uh, sometimes. And so it's something that we just have to think about is that we can come up with the best protocols or strategies, but if we don't have a culture that will actually embrace those and, and uh, implement them, uh, we will continue to have difficulties in getting patients off the ventilator soon enough. Brian, um, as you noted, the uh, most recent studies demonstrate that up to 50% of unplanned extubations in the pediatric critical care population do not need to be reintubated. So that's reinforcing your point that we're apparently too slow to extubate and liberate these children from mechanical ventilation and efficiently uh, you know, move them uh, from therapy to therapy. Um, and as you also just cited, um, the literature demonstrates that somewhere between 5 and 15% of patients after extubation need to be reintubated, and that many people feel that that rate is too low, that that too indicates that we're apparently being too slow to test children for their readiness for extubation. Um, so I have to ask the question, and I suspect uh, others are wondering this too, what is the optimal 
reintubation rate. If, if, if our unit has a reintubation rate of 5%, are we being too conservative and leaving too many children attached to mechanical ventilation and all the burdens and, and life-threatening potentially injuries that go with it? On the other hand, if you told me that our new reintubation rate is 15%, I think I'd be telling you to launch a quality improvement effort, uh, that that seems too high. What is the right number? Is there anything in the literature or in your experience to guide us? Yeah, so I think this is, yet again, another oversimplification. In other words, it's an average of all of our patients. Um, and so we have some very complex patients in which I would expect their reintubation rate um, uh, to be in 15 to 20% potentially uh, range. But then simple post-op patients, uh, I would expect it to be less than 5% uh, at times. And so I think we have to actually determine the complexity of the patient before we can actually use a metrics like reintubation rate um, to apply to them. Another group of patients uh, that I'd like to talk a little bit about is our chronically mechanically ventilated patients. And so these are the patients that have been on uh, the mechanical ventilator for weeks. Uh, they likely have uh, muscle atrophy. Um, they haven't been deep breathing and coughing often because we've probably sedated them, uh, maybe even paralyzed them for short periods of times. Um, and spontaneous breathing trials in this patient population often overpredict their success. Um, and then if you have to reintubate these patients, at least in the adult literature, it's associated with worse outcomes. Um, but something that we don't do very often in uh, critical care is rehabilitation. And this is something that uh, uh, Johns Hopkins has actually led the way in adults um, when it comes to rehabilitation is actually starting it really soon after uh, requiring mechanical ventilation, whether it's just arm exercises or leg exercises. And it helps speed up that uh, uh, weaning process a lot of times. And so we need to continue to support interventions that allow our patients to get stronger um, so that they can come off the ventilator sooner um, and in better shape. And in 2008, uh, in the New England Journal article um, about the rapid disuse atrophy of the diaphragm, uh, really uh, woke me up when it comes to oversupporting and oversedating patients. Um, and so they demonstrated that in patients who were declared brain dead, they took samples of their diaphragm fibers, um, and then they actually compared them to controls in, in which patients were having uh, surgeries in which they were near the diaphragm, they'd actually go and grab a sample. Um, and you can see here that they actually have uh, rapid uh, atrophy um, in the cases compared to the controls. Um, and they concluded that uh, the combination of either complete diaphragm inactivity as little as 18 to 69 hours. Um, and so uh, I think about some of our patients in which we've paralyzed them for longer than that. Um, and you wonder if uh, their reason that they're failing to wean is because they have complete atrophy of their diaphragm. And so we have to go into a rehab mode to be able to actually recover them. Well, Brian, um, so you've taken us through uh, protocols and guidelines to help standardized care while the patient's on or weaning from mechanical ventilation to reduce unnecessary variability. But now the question becomes, are there any new technologies out there to help us better use mechanical ventilation in safe and effective ways or to guide us in liberating the patient from mechanical ventilation sooner? That's a great question. And that's one of the also uh, failures that I think with that uh, we have is that we've 
are we fail to embrace new technology. Uh, and I'm talking about technology that works. Um, so I'm not advocating for technology that hasn't been shown to be any better than the current technology. Um, but I believe that there are some out there. Um, and they're these adaptive, closed loop, uh, and weaning modes of ventilation. They've been around for many, many years. But we fail to actually grasp them. Um, and many of our ventilators actually come with them already built in and we still do not use them. In other words, they're at our patient's bedside, but we often don't do that. And I just listed several of them here that uh, I know are FDA approved, and uh, many of them are also uh, appro approved in Europe as well. Um, and so they're often developed um, with a reason in mind. Uh, for example, NAVA and uh, proportional cyst uh, ventilation um, have actually been advocated for for helping improve uh, weaning um, and asynchrony issues that we talked about earlier. Uh, auto mode, uh, which has been around for many, many years, and I think you probably used with the 300, uh, the Servo 300, is often uh, used for post-operative patients in, in which you're just waiting for them to wake up and start spontaneously breathing. And so it recognizes that as soon as they start spontaneously breathing, just switches them over to pressure support, and then you can come back and see that they've been on pressure support for an hour or two hours and then plan to do an extubation. Uh, smart care is actually a little bit more uh, complex. It has uh, it's a pressure support weaning tool that actually uses entitled CO2 and helps uh, augment that along with respiratory rate. Um, and, and there's many more. Um, most of these uh, modes of ventilation, obviously, if they've been FDA approved, then they've been uh, what they call 510K, which means that they are equivalent to other modes of ventilation. Um, and so many of them aren't superior. Uh, but when it comes to improving our efficiencies, um, they've actually been shown to reduce weaning times um, without changing changes in mortality or ICU length of stay or hospital stay, any of those other things that we think may be related to quality. Um, but if you can reduce weaning times, that may be a reason to use these particular modes of ventilation. So Brian, um, we're talking about new technologies, but of course there are old technologies that perhaps we could be using better. And in particular, um, in pediatrics, uh, the, the question of uh, pressure versus volume um, as the mode of mechanical ventilation in critically ill children. And um, as you well know, uh, uh, and your textbook well documents this, that the, um, the evolved preference in, um, in neonatal and pediatric critical care is to utilize pressure-limited uh, mechanical ventilation as the preferred or most common mode of mechanical ventilation. And yet, uh, volume mode of mechanical ventilation also has uh, uh, benefits and, and some some burdens. How do you think about that trade-off? It's, it's something that uh, is historical. Uh, remember when the ventilators were first developed, uh, they could only do time cycle pressure limited ventilation for neonates and, and smaller children. Um, and we used to use adult ventilators for our older kids. But now there's newer technology. Um, so the, the ventilators can now deliver very small tidal volumes very accurately. Um, but yet we still hold on to some of those old uh, technologies. Um, and I think about uh, the difference between pressure and volume ventilation. Um, and so when you think about pressure ventilation, it's probably a good lung protective uh, mode of ventilation for our patients with uh, ARDS. Um, however, in patients, other patients in which we're mechanically ventilated for other reasons, um, such as head injured patients who have uh, intracranial pressure issues, um, it seems like volume ventilation would actually be better uh, because it provides a more consistent CO2 elimination. 
Um, and this is particularly important when patients are very pH or CO2 sensitive. So one of the negative things about uh, pressure ventilation is that it provides an inconsistent minute ventilation. Uh, this is uh, important uh, for those patients who need uh, consistent CO2 elimination or are pH sensitive. And, and four that I'll list off here is our head injured patient that has intracranial pressure issues, congenital heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, and myocardial dysfunction. And if we describe this a little bit sooner, I just wanted to refresh your uh, memory about uh, how we actually set these uh, modes of ventilation. And so pressure at the top here, we set peak and story pressure, PEEP, uh, and rate. Um, and that equals an inconsistent minute ventilation because it depends on the compliance, the tidal volume may vary quite drastically. When it comes to volume ventilation, you actually set a tidal volume, a respiratory rate, a PEEP, and then peak inspiratory pressure is measured. And this equals a consistent minute ventilation from that perspective. Um, the other differences that I'd like to point out in this particular diagram um, is respiratory effort. So as our patients wake up, uh, a lot of times we uh, allow them to spontaneously breathe and interact with the, the ventilator. And so if I contract my diaphragm or use my respiratory muscles and I'm in pressure control ventilation, the tidal volume will actually increase. And so patients will potentially hyperventilate themselves um, or likewise, if they get really anxious or, um, and uh, the nurse decides to sedate, you know, the patient can then uh, not use their respiratory muscles um, and their tidal volume will actually drop and their CO2 will actually go up. Whereas with volume control ventilation, it doesn't matter. So the peak inspiratory pressure will lower if someone's using their respiratory muscles uh, to ventilate um, and the tidal volume will stay consistent. If they uh, get sedated um, and their compliance worsens because they're not using their respiratory muscles, then the peak inspiratory pressure will just climb on the ventilator. And then we can set alarms and alerts at, this, uh, at each of these levels to allow us to, to be able to track and trend patients. In summary, often protocols are associated with cookbook medicine, but well-written and operationalized protocols can standardize while maintaining individualization. We need to embrace new technologies that not only improve mortality, but also efficiency of care. Terrific, well, Dr. Brian Walsh, uh, thank you for joining us on World Share Practice Forum today and sharing with us uh, all of your extensive uh, experience and um, all of your wealth of understanding about the literature as it exists today in the care of infants and children on mechanical ventilatory support. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.